Hello, and welcome to Prophetic Voices Preaching and Teaching Beloved Community, a podcast from the Episcopal Church's Office of Reconciliation, Justice, and Creation Care, where we explore the season and the lectionary through the lens of social justice. I'm your host, Reverend Shaniqua, Staff Officer for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm so glad you're here with us. In this episode of Prophetic Voices, we'll be discussing Maundy Thursday. Our fabulous guests this week are the Reverend Phil Hooper, who serves as curate at Trinity Episcopal Church, Fort Wayne, in the Diocese of Northern Indiana, and the Reverend Shug Goodlow, who is diocesan missioner for racial reconciliation and justice in the Diocese of Missouri and serves as the assistant rector at St. Martin's Episcopal Church in Ellisville. When not involved in church matters, you'll find her working in community theater production. Welcome, my friends. What do you think is important to keep in mind this year for Holy Week? Well, thanks for throwing a, a looper out there. Um, <laughs> I think that for me, thinking about Jesus's journey to the cross and thinking about our journey over the last couple of years mm. to the cross of COVID, to the cross of loss, to the cross of perhaps uh, reconciliation in some regards, and certainly the path to the cross of new life. There's been a lot of loss, and out of that loss, we've had to find new ways to live for ourselves, to live for others, to live for community. Yeah, as I as I listen to you, Shug, I think over the past couple of years with all of the loss that we have collectively faced, there's I think there can feel at times like we're living through a, a moment where there's a, a crisis of meaning sort of in, in a time where it's like, what does it all mean? Why why are we going through this? What is life all about when so many things that have been sources of meaning or ways of making meaning together have been removed, have seemed unstable? And I think Holy Week this year, always, but maybe especially now, is an opportunity to reconnect with what it all means for us as Christians because this is the week in which we encounter the meaning of our faith, the meaning of our community, the meaning of everything as revealed in Christ. And so this can be, I think, an opportunity to really be grounded in that sense of meaning in a time when groundedness feels hard to achieve. And I think also what has been made very clear to me is that there is more than one path to the cross. All of our experiences during this time have been, we've shared some things, but there have been some things that have been very different. For me, it was not difficult to be in seclusion, to be, if you want to say quarantined, whatever terminology you want to use for it. It was not difficult for me because I found myself connecting with people and scripture and experiences, and frankly, in ways that I may not have had it not been for the pandemic. It opened up a lot of possibilities for me. It opened up, I made some things very visible to me that, as we say, there are none so blind as those that will not see. And there was a lot of what clouds our vision was removed during that time because we had very limited exposure to other people and to places. So a lot was revealed to me in that time. And I, I think that much is revealed to us in Holy Week if we really let ourselves be present to it. Yeah, it's a it's an opportunity to really encounter the depth and the breadth of our faith 
in the space yeah. of these these several days if you if we accept that invitation and I, I think you're absolutely right this whole season of of our sort of of life in these past couple of years has been an invitation to really perceive what might have been hidden or hidden behind distractions mm. and what does it look like to really open ourselves up it's risky but also so life-giving to do that and and maybe holy week is a microcosm of that and i think also that i had to really look at perspective and realize that i really do want to be a person that lives from a place of faith and not fear mm-hmm. and i think it was very easy to fall into being afraid fearful what's going to happen you know will it ever be normal again and you know there may there may be a new normal for all we know um mm-hmm. yeah. and and certainly we need to really, really, really consider what our lives can be as we align ourselves with Jesus and what it means to be, to have a living Christ. I think all too often we think of Christ as this guy way, way far in the past. And, but mm-hmm. we, we serve a living God. And so uh, no matter what happens, God is present with us. So I just really, it really put me in a, making sure that I stayed in a place of faith and didn't let myself get into that fearful place and uh, communicating that to people that I, you know, talk to uh, over Zoom, over the phone, whatever. It's It's been quite quite a journey. And again, I liken it to that journey during Holy Week. This past year, I know for me, I've lost several family members but i also had the benefit i guess of being with them when they died or you know being close to them and seeing that transition from like them being alive to them like going on their spirit journey it kind of makes me think it, it kind of makes the holy week more present or real in, in that sense or so i don't know how to explain this what i'm trying to say but it's 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 made it very present for me and thinking about that and how i can connect with it maybe a little easier is maybe what i'm trying to say and i remember the the Triduum, you know, it, it's kind of mysterious, like the Trinity, right? You have one God and three persons, and the Triduum is like one service, but it's kind of like three, and, you know, but it's only supposed to be one. I was kind of thinking about that, because you go from, like, you know, life to death to life again. And, and what, is, what does the Triduum mean to you, or how do you think about it? Yeah, I, I was always formed to think of it as a sort of unitive experience. So I try to encourage people to come to all three services if they can, because I think you really miss part of the, the immersive experience of Holy Week if you're not if you're not present for all of the aspects of the Triduum. Uh, it's kind of like a piece of music, like a symphony or something where there are different movements, but they all are part of the same story, the same experience. And so giving yourself over to the fullness of that really enriches your awareness and your perception of, of what is trying to be communicated through the liturgy, the story of Christ. And I think to some of the points that both of you made earlier, it's it's not, uh, the triduum is, it's not a spectator sport. It's something that you're invited to give yourself over to, to be fully present and participating in. You don't just sort of sit back and hear told something that happened a long time ago. You are showing up and taking your place in that story and saying, how how is this relevant to the losses I've suffered, the joys I've experienced in my life over the past year or more, and and how does the Paschal mystery sort of have an actual bearing on who I am and who I am becoming? 
And I actually had to ask myself that question. I was ordained to the transitional diaconate on January 23rd last year. And on January 25th, my sister died from COVID. Mm. And so all of those feelings, all of those emotions, all of, all of, you know, the joy and then the, the sorrow and the, and where am I in all of this? Where is she in all of this? Uh, my sister who passed away had a saying all the time, and this is something my family has held on to. She, no matter what was going on, she always said, oh, just be happy. And even when she, when she died, we had t-shirts made to say, just be happy. And that was her answer to everything. And so it gave me a different perspective on my faith at that time. It would have been easy really to fall into just deep despair and grief. But I really thought about her journey. And in thinking about her journey, I thought about my journey. And again, as you said, we are part of the story. We're not uninterested or uninvolved spectators. And I think we have to be constantly reminded of that. You're not just reading a book. You're not just reading stories. You're part of this story. You're a living part of the story as much as Jesus is a living part of the story. Yes. So what liturgical suggestions do you have for this service? I know a lot of people do feet washing. Some people do the Eucharist a little differently and make it look like a Passover Seder. Some people maybe do like some sort of actual meal. You know, for me, it has differed depending on what parish I was in. I've seen both. I've seen foot washing that was joyfully done by our bishop as well as clergy at, at a you know particular place. And I had one instance where, uh, and I had not been ordained yet, where a woman came to me and she said, I want you to wash my feet. And so I kind of looked at the bishop like, uh, is that okay? And he was like, absolutely. And so it really brought home the, the story of us loving each other and serving each other. However, I've been at other parishes where the mere mention of foot washing, <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't do that. Right. You know, and, and I'm talking about clergy telling me, oh, we don't do that here. That, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so you just wonder how there could be such divergent reactions to this when the gospel is very clear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and this is something that I, I continue to struggle with, is the divergent attitudes and practices surrounding foot washing. I, I too, have experienced in various parishes all manner of expressions of, of Monday Thursday observance. The awkward foot washing, the lovely foot washing, the meal, uh, the sort of agape meal experience. And I think all of them can be wonderful. Of course, right now we are in a moment of uncertainty still around pandemic and contact and proximity. So I realized that some of those traditional expressions might be limited in, in the current moment. So one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, we have these liturgical expressions, but they're meant to convey something. So the foot washing is meant to convey a particular ethos, a particular manner of living and, and showing up in community. And so one could say, well, what is the spirit underneath the foot washing? And are there alternative ways that I could build a space and be in a space that expresses that same spirit, a spirit of mutuality, of vulnerability? Episcopalians aren't always good with vulnerability. Right. 
at least in my experience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so, but how else, if we can't do the foot washing this year because of COVID, what else can we do to be vulnerable with one another and to say, oh yeah, actually we need one another. We are nothing without one another. I think sort of remembering what underlies could maybe be a jumping off point to reimagine how to express the liturgy in this particular time. As we talk about this, I'm reminded of something that happened several years ago when we were doing the foot washing. And I believe it was the vicar's little girl, who probably was about six, maybe, came up and said that she wanted to do foot washing. She wanted to actually do it. And so one of us went over and helped with it because the pitcher of water was rather large, and we helped with that. And she probably washed four or five people's feet, if not more. And the that was such a profound display, a mm. profound visual in the church. And there were at least three people that I can remember that said, oh, I get it now. Mm. I get it. And if that child gets it, how, how is it I haven't gotten it in all this time? Someone actually said that to me. So I totally agree with you. It's if I'm constantly finding, trying to find ways to do what we can't do, mm-hmm. to make a way where there is no way mm-hmm. because of hope, because of restrictions, because of rules or, or whatever. How can we be open and vulnerable and loving to each other? How can we express that? Yes. Foot washing is fairly safe if both people are masked, you know? When we do it, we always get like a crock pot, or I think they call them Nesco, like a big turkey roaster type thing that's electric. And I'll put, roll up the towels and put them in there and then pour water over it and put some essential oil or something on there so they smell good and then let that kind of cook. And then before the service, you unplug it and bring it upstairs. And so then everybody gets a fresh towel so you don't have to worry about cross-contamination. And then you have a different towel you dry with. But... I always remember like growing up with my grandparents who were diabetic, the importance of washing my grandma's feet and just caring for her feet because, you know, when you're diabetic, you don't always feel. So sometimes she did like, she could have, you have to just watch because you can get like an infection and not even know about it from like a hangnail or something. And so I remember always doing that as a way of caring for her and caring about her and how much she appreciated it, but also as kind of like a way of, I don't know necessarily giving back, but a way of, you know, caring for your elders and things like that. Mm -hmm. In our lectionary, you know, we have the story of like the Exodus Passover story. And then we also have the story in John of the Last Supper What do you think are some parallels you see between the two of them or what are some unique differences? The one I'm thinking of is the, or the difference I noticed right away is that the one is like, there's all these rules. It's like, you have to do this quick and you got to do it now and eat it and and you should be eating it hurriedly. And then, and you should eat it all. But then it says later, but if you don't eat it all, then do this, which I think is very, very God as gracious because, you know, God tells us to do a lot of things and we don't always do it. So God is like, yep. And if you can't do that, then do this. And I think as clergy people, we might say that to our congregations too. Like, don't forget to put your pledge in and don't forget to do this and da 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 da. But if you can't do that, then do this. Uh, but then, you know, the last supper, it seems so much more contemplative a little bit and maybe loving and not that necessarily the Passover wasn't, but it just seems so emotional between the people that were present there. Yeah. I think the two accounts are offered in such different contexts. So it's good to remember 
those differences so we don't overly conflate them. The Passover is, is very pragmatic because literally the people who were receiving these instructions needed to know exactly what to do to escape captivity. They were being liberated by God from an oppressive ruler and a, an oppressive environment and needed to get out. So in the same way that probably other uh, people who, are, who were escaping oppression, slavery, what, what have you, needed practical steps to know what to do, I think you see that sort of very sort of contextual and embodied experience in the Passover account for these people in this place and time who needed a way out to freedom. And in John's gospel, the Last Supper, John's gospel generally being a bit more spiritual and transcendent in its language and nature, but you sort of see the way in which there are these universal implications and sort of the way in which the the Last Supper, while it may have a liberative dimension, it, it is much more so featured in, a, in an interior sort of way. What it, how, does, how does this meal, how does this relationship between Jesus and his disciples, how is it sort of liberative of the human heart? The human spirit, and and what are the what are the ways in which that is applicable to all people, in the, in the way that the gospel is is shared. So I think it's good for us to sort of notice the the parallels between these two, without sort of equating them. I personally get a little weirded out by sort of Christian Passover meals that are done uh, sometimes. I think the Passover is part of our Judeo-Christian heritage, but it is also a very sort of rooted, contextualized story of a people. And we can look to that for inspiration, but, but we don't need to say it's exactly the same as what we experience in the, in the Eucharistic meal. Yeah, Phil, I don't think I could really add too much more to that. I will say, and this is actually a totally different conversation, I will say that the relationship between these readings are immediately made me think of the civil rights movement in this country mm. in terms of some of what Shaniqua was saying about hurry up and do this, hurry up and do this. I've lived long enough in this country and was part of, took part in many of the events uh, surrounding the civil rights movement. And there were times when we were told we had to hurry up and do some things because, and a lot of it had to do with safety issues and so forth and so on, but also trying to come to understand the liberative nature that we hoped for that would be happen as a result of what we were doing or what we were encouraged and told to do. So I, I immediately saw that link, and, and being as this is Black History Month, that you know that kind of popped up in my brain again. But I really like the way you framed that, and there's tension between the two, I think. But there is also, there's a commonality, but it, it shouldn't necessarily be intertwined so that we lose sight of what each one of those is about. Yeah. In the story of the Passover, you see, you know, they take this blood of the sheep and they put it on the door and everything. What connections can you make between that and nowadays? Like, who are the sheep that we metaphorically sacrifice today, maybe? And another thing might be like, what are our metaphorical doors and lintels of today? And whose blood are we placing on them? Well, I think it's clear that we are putting the blood of the disenfranchised, wherever they might be, on the door. 
whether that be socially, racially, sexual orientation, economic, social class, whatever it is. And the door for me is the structures that exist. And so who can't, who can't cross the threshold? And who, what's going to happen to these people if they do cross the threshold? So it's clear to me that that's the disenfranchised in, in our society. As I think about that question, I struggle with the idea of sacrifice as we use it in sort of common language. I think that part of what we receive in the Paschal Mystery is that God has already made the sacrifice, the sort of the sufficient and total sort of offering to God's self within between God the Father and God the Son. And so all of these notions of us needing to participate in re-offering a sacrifice, re-offering sort of blood on the lintel, if you will, of, of anyone is really not sacrifice at all. I honestly think that we need to stop using the word sacrifice or use it very carefully because we, we will use that word as sort of saying, oh, we're, we're offering something up to a greater purpose or to a greater power, or this person sacrificed themselves or something was sacrificed for another. I don't know. I think sometimes that can romanticize what is actually just killing, hmm. you know? So let's just call things what they are, especially like what Chug is talking about, the, the blood of the disenfranchised. That's not sacrifice. That's murder. Hmm. That is destruction. And so in Jesus's sacrifice, we see that all of our sort of human attempts at sacrifice are insufficient and really invalid. So we need to, I would say, collectively move away from any sense that we can offer a sacrifice, because then what we actually end up doing is just justifying the violence that we inflict upon one another mm -hmm. and let God's own sort of offering to God's self be the revelation to us that all of the violence that exists in this world will never actually achieve anything. The only thing that we can really do is accept the peace that God offers and cease this sort of language around a noble sacrifice. I don't think there really is any such thing for us apart from Christ. Well, I, I hear what you're saying, but I, I don't have a problem with using that word uh, because I think that it has a very different connotation for what is happening in our world today. Hmm. And I think that people that do these things, whether it's killing or disenfranchising entire groups of people, whatever it is, very intentionally know, feel that they are doing this so that they can maintain their position of power hmm. or whatever it is. And so I need to sacrifice you in order for me to stay where I am, in order for me to have what I have. I don't hmm. want, you know, I don't want you to be able to take anything away from me, whether it's power, whether it's physical things, whether it's position, whatever it is. I do need to sacrifice you in order for me to continue to have what I have. And so I understand where you're coming from, but I think that many times when people do some of the things they do, whether it's killing or imprisoning or whatever it is, is that this is done with the intention 
and the thought that they are in fact sacrificing something. The other ideal of sacrifice has to do, if I go back to the civil rights movement, is there are many people who have put themselves out there whose sacrifice was no less. And I don't mean to minimize Jesus in any way, but I mean, I sacrificed my life so that this movement could go forward. Mm. You know, again, you think about you think about the civil rights movement. You think about, in some regards, even though they weren't really given a choice, you think about the Holocaust. You think about, you know, you think about the atrocities that have been done in humankind and of, and the sacrifice of life that many people have made that I don't, in many ways, consider it any less an intentionality of what Jesus did. I mean... You know what? Again, what greater love is there? Hmm. So follow the example of Jesus in that regard of sacrifice. I think is very noble, and I think it depends on perspective and intent. When I was thinking about that question, I was thinking about the—I forget what it's called. There's a fancy word for it, but and stores do all the time. It's like when people call humble bragging, maybe, or there's there's a different word, virtue signaling. That's the word I was looking for. Mm-hmm. When the people are like, that's like them putting the blood on the doors and lintels. When corporations are like, oh look, we're selling pink toasters now for breast cancer awareness this week, or you know. Now we're going to have this special, it's Black History Month. You can celebrate Black History Month by buying this new TV that's, you know, got, you know, red, black, gold, and green on it, or, you know, whatever, that kind of thing, and how that's not necessarily helpful, right? I mean, maybe it's helpful for the company, obviously, because that might help them make money, but how is that actually helping to solve the sin of racism? If we look at the gospel, I always wonder, it says something, you know, that the devil put this idea into Judas's heart. And I always think, you know, Judas sometimes I feel like gets a bad rap. I I never know how to take Judas. Like, do you think Judas was redeemed in the (laughs) end? Do we think Judas wasn't? Like, and I feel like there's so many, like, is the devil putting an idea in your heart, meaning you still have a choice over, or did he not have a choice? I have all these questions in my head about Judas. Maybe it's because I identify with like sin, or, you know, we always think about the sin that we have done. And (laughs) anyway, what are your thoughts about all that? Well, sometimes I feel that Judas definitely gets a bad rap. I mean, he almost single-handedly got the crucifixion ball rolling, and we can't deny that, you know. I mean, when you think about it, how do you turn on someone who loved you and invited you into the inner circle, and you were able to witness change, I mean, meaningful change? He certainly doesn't get any points for loyalty. On the other hand, I think that maybe there came a point when he thought Jesus wasn't doing what he thought he should be doing, what he had said he would he would set out to do. And so in a way, I think he thought he was he was doing the right thing. I think he's a complex dude, you know, and and I think his complexity raises questions about our own complexity in terms of what we believe about Jesus and what we believe we're justified in doing at times. Again, that saying, does the end justify the means? You raised an interesting thing, Shaniqua, when you were talking about if the devil can invoke something in us, do we have do we have choice? Do we have free will? And I at the end of the day, I have to believe that the free will that we were given by God supersedes all other foolishness that might, you know, enter into our lives. I just 
have to believe that. And if I, if, because if I don't believe that, then I am, I am just flailing in the wind and whatever comes along, you know, I, it's like, I have all these different personalities. I have all these different actions that I take. I have all these bad decisions that I make, which we all know we all do that. And those times when we do that, it's because why? Because we exercised our free will, you know? It's it's not because somebody gave us an injection and said, okay, now you're going to go do 10 stupid things today. It's because we exercised our God-given free will. Hmm. Yeah, I've never been really interested in sort of binary thinking when it comes to Judas, whether it's sort of the embodied evil devil acting within him or whether he just is somehow an irredeemable human being that participates in the story. I just don't, I think that makes it too easy to distance him from us in our Mm. perception uh, to think, well, there's a really bad person and thank goodness I'm not like that. I, I think, I think we all have the capacity of betrayal within us. I think we all have the capacity to forsake even the most beautiful things and relationships in our life for reasons that we can never fully comprehend or understand. I mean, that's the mystery of evil in our midst. And as Shug was saying, that is something that we just have to reckon with without sort of writing it off very easily. So while I, I don't necessarily want to cast Judas like in the role of Elphaba and Wicked, you know, he's just misunderstood. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I wouldn't go that far, but yeah. but I would say like, let's also not just cast Judas as something so other that we don't ever have to be troubled by him. I'd rather sort of wrestle with Judas and say, gosh, what does this even mean? Who is this person? And, and how is he like me in ways that maybe I don't want to think about? Right. I th- and I think we all have to, recognize that there's probably a little bit of Judas in all of us. And, yeah. and, and what do we do with that? And I think that some do more with it than others and not necessarily in good ways. But to think that Judas is this distant entity that we don't really have to think about until we read this story or until we hear this particular passage, that doesn't serve us to do that. I maintain there's a little bit of Jesus in all of us. Uh, Judas, I'm sorry, in all of us. Hopefully there's a lot of Jesus in all of us, but right. <laughs> a little bit of Judas in all of us. Exactly. Yes. It's interesting how othering can be so insidious because Judas mm. gets othered. We say, oh, Judas is not like me. Judas is this evil person who betrayed Jesus. Exactly. And then over the history of Christianity, somehow conveniently Judas gets conflated with all Jewish people. Right, right. And we conveniently forget that Jesus was also Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so somehow like the evil of Judas becomes the evil of Judaism. And then that becomes a scapegoat for all evil in the world. So it's really, it's really dangerous how othering can sort of lead to conceptual othering can lead to like actual othering of people. And we should not do that, to say the least. Yeah, that's an excellent that's an excellent point and I totally agree. It's so easy to fall into that for, for a lot of people. I just remember somebody and I I think inherently we know this, but sometimes we have to be reminded that Jesus washed 
Judas's feet and fed Judas too, right? Yes, and I always yes. had to remember that, especially when I think about like church bullies in some of our congregations, which I'm sure almost every congregation must have. If you have, if you don't have a congregation that has a church bully, you are very blessed. Um, <laughs> but I think like how how does that work when you think about how we're called to interact with folks? Right. Mm-hmm. We talked a little bit about the foot washing, but where do you see examples of living out Jesus's teaching in service in our church? Or where would you like to see examples in our church? Where might we see things like that happening? Or it just maybe in our life period? You know, even though I'm a priest, sometimes things, and it probably does have a theological base to it, to my thinking, but I have a firm belief we have to meet people where they are, wherever that is, and that how I help person A is not necessarily how I help or should help person B, that we have to really try to get to understand what people need, or at least what they think they need, and to not make judgment about that, and to be there for them in a way that helps them move forward. And to just make it simple for me, I say, how can I make this person's life better? Sometimes I feel like the danger of being an ordained person is that we think at a particular level when it's really so much easier than, you know, we make it way too hard sometimes to just be a person, you know, just be a, a human, just be, just what does this person need? How can I help? What can I do? That's probably not the answer you wanted, but, <laughs> you know, like when that person said, I want you to wash my feet. Clearly that was something that that person needed and wanted. And so, yeah. And I, you know, I have times when people come to me and say, I, I just want you to listen. I don't want you to say anything. I just want you to listen. You know, so I don't need to pontificate for that person. I don't need to impress this person with what I know or what I think. Sometimes I just want to be human. You know, I just want to just want to be human with other humans. And I think if we if we cease to do that as ordained persons, lay people, whoever, whoever we might be, if we cease to be human and if we cease to tend to the, the real and practical needs of the people in front of us, all the pontificating in the world is pointless. It is utterly hollow. So I, I think the foot washing is a good reminder that our, our primary call in, in following Jesus is to tend to the needs of people, the actual needs, the, the, the embodied needs of human beings. And that can be the sort of immediate thing, you know, a person who, you know, is hungry or needs shelter. And it also means the sort of bigger picture needs of people, the, the things that we talk about when we talk about systems of oppression right. or injustice and, right. and attending to those and dismantling those. Those are all like actual things that people need. And Yes, we preach a message of love and reconciliation, but hopefully that those are not just words. Hopefully they mm. show up in the way we actually live our lives and then they will ring true. And I think that people probably look more at what we do more than listen to what we say at times. How are we living out our charge as human beings, our charge as priests? Our charge as Episcopalians, however you want to say it, my charge as 
as a black woman, as a gay woman, as, you know, as the oldest of nine children, as a sister, those things are different for all of us, whatever they might be. So how, how are we doing that? What are people seeing? Rather than, there's an element of what they're hearing from us, but I would bet money that what, what they're seeing is more important. Yeah. I think the church generally, the Episcopal Church is trying to address this maybe in, in various ways, but just the church in the West, I, I think we're in, sure, people talk about a crisis, a crisis of membership, a crisis of money, of cultural change, et cetera. I, I think ultimately it's just, we're in a, we're in a crisis of authenticity. Yes. Are we actually an institution that embodies the ideals that we sort of point to in preaching and liturgy? Like, do we actually do the thing or don't we? Mm-hmm. And if we don't, then what are we doing here? Right. And if we haven't done much of it, then let's do more. Like, let's actually live it out. Mm-hmm. Because that's that's why we're here. And if we're not authentically leaning into the message of Jesus and the actions of Jesus, then there's really no point to, to any of it. And beyond that, if we have to create spaces for people to be able to live authentically into that as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. I remember my wife and I were looking for a church and we went to a church and I immediately knew that that was where I wanted to be and she felt the same way. And when somebody asked me why, I said, because I didn't feel I had to leave anything at the door when I came in here. Mm. I was able to be authentically who I am. I didn't have to pretend my wife was my sister or my friend or whatever. I didn't, you know, I am who I am. She is who she is. We are who we are together, and we are here to worship and be in community with you. And nobody put any barriers up to that. So we have to make sure that we're helping people and creating spaces for people to be authentic as well and to worship in whatever way is authentic for them. And, you know, we what you said is so true. We have to, as a church, we have to say what we mean and mean what we say, you know. And it can't be this thing where you, you're talking, but you ain't saying nothing. <laughs> you know? Or you're talking <laughs> and not doing anything, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think are some messages from this gospel and from Jesus' teaching that that we're missing or that we haven't paid enough attention to? There's a section in this gospel reading about glorification, how God is glorified. And I, as I was reading through it before we talked, I just, it struck me as, as a piece that we probably don't talk about. I don't, I don't think we talk about what it means to glorify God, really. And sometimes I, I think that phrase just kind of gets interpreted as, maybe like praising God or sort of pointing to God or talk, just talking about God. But it actually, I think in, in this story, in the washing of the feet, in the Paschal mystery more generally, in, in the Eucharist certainly, like God, for God to be glorified means for something essential about God to be revealed, for mm. God's presence to be made known and experienced among the people. And I wonder if we 
need to maybe spend a little bit more time thinking about that idea of glory and of glorification. Because sometimes like all these things that we've been talking about in conversation about service and and sacrifice in the manner of Christ, of laying down your life for for the sake of love, all these, these deeply important things. Sometimes it can be easy to forget that we're not just doing those to be sort of just generically moral or virtuous or good people or good citizens, but we're actually doing them because those things are essentially of God, because that is the nature of who God is and who God wants us to be. And so we don't we don't just wash each other's feet to be nice. We don't just sort of share Eucharist to be sort of nice. We do it because it is godly, because it brings about the essence of who God is into our midst. And in that, we experience the sort of glory of God in our midst. And I would like us as an Episcopal church to lean more deeply into not hide, I would say, from this idea of glorifying God to really embrace the sort of call to holiness that exists within within this reality. This is not just about building a human community, but it's about participating in the community that is God's manifestation on earth. Hmm. I was struck by Peter not wanting Jesus to wash his feet and what Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And, you know, for me, that's the model. Unless I do some things, I have no share with Jesus. Unless I let Jesus do some things in my life, I have no share with Jesus. That doesn't happen by accident, having a share with Jesus. And Jesus was very clear about that in that reading. And I think the exact words were, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. So that that really resonated with me when I read that. and probably for the first time resonated in such a way that it hadn't before. I think Mm. I was so concentrating on the physical act of the foot washing, some of the other aspects of it didn't really get to me. But those words have, I literally have gone to bed at night with those words in my brain, you know, and it was stunning. I mean, that is a stunning statement to me. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. How profound is that? How, you know, I mean, that is just something to hold on to, to really, God trust us that much to want to be in a position to share with us. That's all, that's all for what. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to feel. It's a lot to consider. It's a convicting statement, too. I mean, it says that it it says we bear some responsibility in that relationship. We we actually have to receive what God is offering us, that washing, that that new life, that, that path of service. We actually need to choose to live it and to receive it. Yeah. I don't want to do this to you. I want to do this with you. And I want Mm -hmm. you to receive. And, you know, this is not just a one-way transaction. This is, I want to do this with you. I want to do this for you. This makes me wonder about a lot of 
or at least the stereotype anyway of Episcopalians doing good work is usually we just pull out the checkbook and, you know, the church yeah. writes a check for something. And this makes me really think about how are we actually taking part in the work of Christ out in the world rather than just writing a check for that work, right? How are we, yeah. Yeah. how are we actually washing the feet or how are we actually moving? And I remember somebody, I don't remember who I, I heard different people say it actually, but the line about like, we don't just need allies. We actually need co-conspirators. You know, we need mm -hmm. people who aren't just going to support us from the background. Like, yep, we support you, but we need people who are actually going to be there with us doing that work with us. Made me think about that. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of something that happened many years ago. We were starting a ministry in this diocese, Magdalene House. Someone had donated a, a building and we were having fundraisers to do the renovation work in the building and to buy things to be able to house these women who had previously been uh, sex workers. And I was telling a woman about it in a affluent part of St. Louis, where I was at an event, and I told her about it, and she wanted to write a check, and she wanted to write a rather large check. And I invited her to come to Magdalene House and see what we were doing and so forth and so on. And she said, oh, I don't want to see them. I just want to write the check. Mm. So... And I also had someone tell me something very similar about not wanting to see homeless people. I just want to write a check so you can buy food. Well, you really doing the work of Jesus when you do that. Do you really get it? And then what should our response to that be? Serving in my parish, I will say that the conversations and encounters I have with folks who come to the door seeking assistance, seeking a meal, a bus pass, place to sleep for the night. Those are some of the holiest and most humbling encounters I have as a Christian. And I'm reminded in those moments that those people are often, they are my teachers. They are my reminders that hiding behind the walls, hiding behind mm. the door of my office, hiding behind the collar and its so-called privileges are all sort of dead end paths that it's only in those spaces of vulnerability where I feel vulnerable and am and encountering the vulnerability of another human that holiness and God's, God's presence really feels sort of acutely there. Yeah. And, and it's, up, it's up to all of us to sort of open ourselves to those kinds of encounters in our life. Writing the check, attending service on a Sunday and talking about the poor, quote unquote, really doesn't mean a whole lot if we can't actually put a human face on those stories. Hmm. And, and to remember always that in those encounters, we receive just as much blessing, if not more so, than the person that we are helping, so to speak. That actually they're helping us. They're saving us because Christ is in them in this sort of real yeah. and present way. We, yeah. we need them as much as, as they need anything. And for me, they are modeling a vulnerability that I always want to have. I don't ever want to feel that I should be any less vulnerable than Jesus was, that these people are. For me, it's modeling. We want to help, but it's modeling a certain relationship with Jesus, a certain entity that we need to be reminded of always.
and being able to write a check or and dropping it off or giving it to somebody and saying I don't I don't want to see those people is you know clearly not the if there is any vulnerability there at all is clearly not something that I want to model or emulate I was thinking about the thing that I always forgot is everybody always thinks it's, at least I always thought when I was younger, Mondi, like Monday, Thursday, but oh. it's actually Mondi from the word mandatum, right? Like mandate, yeah. Christ's yes. mandate for us to love, love one another yes. as Christ yes. loved us. And both of you are talking about examples of that. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been different if Jesus was really wealthy and just threw money at everybody that asked him for right. something. That yeah. might be, that might be how, you know, we might think of like, oh yeah, then Christ's example. But if you think about it, I don't think that ever happened. Even when he needed money for taxes, they cut open a fish and there was money inside, right? It wasn't like Jesus just was like rolling in it somewhere. Rolling in the dough, yeah. <laughs> no. He was not just making grants, right. handing, handing them out to people. He was giving of himself. That's that sacrifice you were talking about earlier. Yeah. And as you, and as you pointed out, Shogun, I think, I think you're absolutely right. It's, the question of sacrifice is, are we, are we emulating the sacrifice of Jesus or are we co-opting that word for some other purpose? But if it's, if it's a self-giving for the sake of love and for the sake of our neighbor, then that's what we're called to do. What suggestions do you have for preaching this text? Hmm. Hmm. My first reaction sort of to that idea is within the triduum, the sort of three-in-one experience oftentimes i would say just less is more the liturgy and the the passage and the the sort of whole unit of experience really speaks for itself i almost wanted to sort of get out of the way as a preacher within my preaching maybe just focus on one sort of aspect don't try to sort of summarize and explain everything i i let the liturgy do its work but you know choose that one essential message that is really opens up or, or even challenges the person in the liturgy to, to really clarify what this is about. But don't, maybe, maybe this is a time to do a shorter homily or sermon, not a, not a whole 20 minute sort of expository on everything that's, that's in the text. Keep it, keep it concise. Let the liturgy speak. Yeah, I think the liturgy speaks very clearly, but I also for me, it, this just has applications across so many areas. And, you know, as always, I say, I always wait to see what the Holy Spirit has to say to me. And usually, and I'm sure this is the case for everybody, I wind up, I wind up preaching something I need to hear, mm -hmm. not what other folks need to hear necessarily. But I do think less is more. I would agree with that. There are some passages that really really, really speak for themselves. And we have to let people and let ourselves be quiet with it. And by being quiet with it, I mean not trying to, to talk it to death. And to let people really hear what the words are, to ingest those words, to ingest the meaning, to ingest what is trying to be conveyed through this living document. These are not words from thousands of years ago that just, you know, died and, and were just telling a story. Um, but the gospel is proclaimed. It's not just read. It's proclaimed. Since it is 
a proclamation I never want to get in the way of. I don't want to get in the way of. And I don't want to put my spin on it. I, I agree with you again that less is more. I think this is, this is not a time to go on and on and on and on. Um, mm -hmm. I am thinking about other things that Jesus said in relationship to this. And the thing that really sticks out to me is more than once Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. And, and thinking about how that dovetails into this, and also that he, he, he did say, but, but it will come. It will come. And I think that in itself is very profound and something that we might, we might want to leave people with. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. That is a great deal of good news right there. I would also add, just add, if folks are looking for a, a sort of a justice-oriented perspective on, yes. on Monday, Thursday, since that, you know, we're, we're sort of exploring those themes here. I would I I think it's good to remember that the foot washing in particular if one chooses to focus on that image or that aspect of Monday Thursday the foot washing is not just about service sort of generically though we are all called to service and that that is a mandate given us to love one another in that way but it's also about the inversion of or even the dismantling of hierarchy because Jesus, Jesus is not just a nice guy. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Lord of all creation. Jesus is the quote unquote ruler of everything. And yet Jesus chooses to take the role of servant doing this sort of incredibly right. humble, humbling mm -hmm. act. And so what does that tell us about all of our sort of posturing and pretensions to mm -hmm. leadership and power? It, it sort of invalidates all of them. It invites us to sort of upend every expectation we have of what a ruler or a leader should be and to really seek that, that really humble, close-to-the-earth posture. So, you know, as we talk about systems of oppression or just all of the ways in which the world has been built to keep some people at the bottom of the hierarchy, I think we can see in Monday Thursday and in this passage that if there is a hierarchy, Jesus and God, therefore, places God's self at the bottom of that hierarchy, not at the top. Yeah, yeah. And that changes everything. Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. When you were talking, Phil, it made me think about, I wonder what would it be like if we had a deacon, because they're, you know, thinking about the, that naming servant, if we had a deacon sort of lead the service, what would it look like if they were the sort of celebrant that came last in the procession, if you process in, or if they were the, I just, that made me kind of wonder about how we would place mm -hmm. them in the service. What, what if they preached or, you know, anyway, that's one thought. And then I was thinking about some ideas for preaching. One of them was asking folks. I know that that foot washing time is very intimate sometimes. It can be kind of uncomfortable for people if you're not used to that. And so sometimes people just get chatty when they're there. Or they don't know what to do. Oh. And so maybe we oh. ask them to, to share, like share about a time when you felt like someone loved you? What was something that mm -hmm. someone did that made you feel seen or felt loved or felt, mm -hmm. you know, like loved like Christ loves us? And sure. just tell the person about that time. Or maybe that would be one of those sermons where you ask other people to preach and you might have people raise hands if they had an idea of a time when they felt seen or maybe sharing about a time you felt seen or felt loved. 
I was thinking about that too, just different examples yeah. of that in my life. You can also preach on the Eucharist too, I suppose, since we talked about the last episode, <laughs> yeah. preach on that. But I feel like you can get that. There's that whole summertime one where there's like eight, I don't think it's really eight, but I think it's like six weeks of bread of life. That's enough time. You can preach about Eucharist plenty then. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for being willing to spend time and share your wisdom and your thoughts with us. I really appreciate it. A pleasure to be part of it. Thank you for the invitation. It's wonderful to to hear what other folks are thinking and feeling and experiencing. It's it's all part of the grand experiment experience for me, particularly as a as a fairly new priest. So I appreciate hearing what you all have to say. And thank you for being willing to listen to me. It's a joy to be with you both. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about Beloved Community, visit episcopalchurch.org forward slash beloved hyphen community. Thanks to our guests, Phil and Shug. Thanks also to our production team, especially Chris and Asma. If you heard something that touched your heart, Please rate, review, and of course, share our podcast. Until next time, let your light shine. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.